Hallelujah. Amen. Father, we thank you in the revelation of Jesus Christ, in your word and in our hearts and our great salvation, that the majesty of his work is seen, Lord, in redemption and in the sanctification of his saints as blemishes and spots are removed unto the presentation of the bride before the bridegroom one day where the holiness, the purchase work of Jesus Christ is fully manifest as your bride is presented perfect before his glory forever. And his glory we see also in governing and sustaining all things and accomplishing the will of the Father and fulfilling the work that you had prophesied before time began to be fulfilled in the perfect time. Lord, that the incarnation and the work of the cross, the resurrection and ascension of our Lord, might assure and secure and establish and confirm and proclaim to all that lives and moves and breathes that Jesus is Lord, that his dominion and authority extend to the reaches of this universe and beyond, all of heaven and earth bow before our Lord and Savior. And his dominion and authority extends over sin and death and the grave and to us, his people, as he has surrendered us, subdued us, and conquered our sin in his work on Calvary, I pray that we would worship him in spirit and in truth today. Lord, let us worship Jesus our Lord in the affirmation of our hearts as we hear his truth proclaimed and the fellowship of the saints as we encourage one another in the faith and in the application of his word as we seek to walk in obedience and faithfulness to our great King. We pray today that the message of truth and authority in Christ alone would touch the hearts of all hearers. If there be any lost among us, that they would repent and place their faith in Christ, declare their allegiance to the King of Kings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning, what a great gift and privilege it is to worship our Lord together, to do so in song and in the hearing of His Word proclaimed. This morning, let us turn to the book of Jude for an overview message as we close this book. We've been in Jude now. This is our 13th installment in this series, once a month for our Communion Sunday. And this uh, week, as we close this book, I'm reminded of the depth and power of Jude's words and their eternal relevance to the church. My aim this morning in this Jude Overview sermon is to summarize the book of Jude in light of its call to worship at the close of his letter. the close of his letter, we have the great doxology of Jude, which is a worshipful song that serves also as a benediction or close, signing off his letter with words that glorify the Lord and stir the hearts of believers and contain within them the power to encourage our souls today. So with that introduction and your hearts opened and in reverence to the Word of God, would you stand as you're able and listen to the closing of Jude's book today, verses 24 and 25. Here is the Word of God. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of God. You may be seated.
This is our final sermon from the short yet powerful epistle of Jude. Puts a capstone on a once a month commitment for more than a year where we've considered in detail the implication and applications of Jude's instructions to the church. Today we seek to place these admonitions in context, considering the book as a whole. I try to close my series on books of the Bible with an overview message. Sometimes it's more difficult if there's a lot of ground to cover. Although there is a lot of content in the book of Jude, it may be easier to summarize the book in that it's only 25 chapters. So that is my attempt today. I've taken as my outline for Jude's letter the fourfold attribution unto God that closes the doxology and final verse. So here these four words ought to be familiar to you as we have referred to them on numerous occasions through the course of this series. Jude describes glory, majesty, dominion, and authority to the only God. And we have noted along the way that this list can be applied as a tool of discernment, one of the purposes for Jude in writing as that the church would be equipped to discern and to oppose any enemies of the faith, how might you describe an enemy in the context of Jude's instructions? Well, that would be, as we've applied, anyone who would seek to diminish or to deny the majesty, the glory, the majesty, the dominion and authority of the only God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jude equips the church in this manner, and he also leaves the church with a model for worship a song that ought to quicken our hearts and encourage our souls and stir us to ascribe to the Lord in our lives, in our confession, in our taking seriously of the Word of God proclaimed to us in Jude, everything that our Lord deserves, that is living in light of His glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Today we take each of these attributes as a thematic, uh, as thematic of a four-part division uh, of the book as a whole. So I have taken these four words uh, to illuminate and to shape the outline of the book as a whole. And in this, my hope and prayer and aim in preaching is that the proclamation of the Word of God in Jude might move us, the church today, to worship the Lord in all aspects of our life and calling. That this summary of the book of Jude, in light of its call to worship, would equip us to live as Jude uh, instructs the, his hearers, his audience, and the first generation of Christianity as servants of our Lord Jesus Christ, as the called, beloved, and kept, full of his mercy, peace, and love, ascribing glory to him and majesty and dominion authority until the Lord calls us home, where we will do so in glory and perfection forever. Let me give you a heading, and let us consider this book in summary this morning. So let's consider the book of Jude illuminated by doxology. So Jude illuminated or enlightened or shining a light on, the four, on four divisions in the book by way of the four attributes of God, glory, dominion, authority, and majesty. Number one, we consider his glory with respect to the audience and occasion of the book, verses one through four. Number two, Jude illuminated by his doxology, dominion, witness, and precedent, verses five through nine. Number three, authority. We have fools and ultimate judgment, 10 through 16. And finally, majesty, exhortation, and worship in 17 through 25. The book of Jude, in, its, in his doxology, or in light of his doxology, we might choose that term glory as a heading for the first four verses, 
as we consider the audience and occasion of this book. Note again verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And then he describes his motives for writing in verse 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. That is verses 1 through 4, the audience and occasion. Consider this in light of the glory of the Lord. Who is redemption's primary beneficiary? I was inspired by Mercy's presentation to use that word beneficiary. I thought, well, is that too complex of a word? I'm like, well, if our brother from overseas with English as a second language can use it, then certainly I can. And there's no excuse for you not to know what it means, but I'll help you out just in case. Those who stand to benefit from the gospel, those who are, in, uh, or who are the object, that is to say, the reason for the gospel, who stands to benefit from Christ's work on Calvary, who is the primary beneficiary of redemption? Well, our first knee-jerk reaction might be, well, me, I'm a believer, I've been saved, I have received the benefits of salvation, Jesus died for me. And although that is true, remember what I said, who is the primary beneficiary of redemption? That is, who benefits first and foremost? Or you could put it this way, who receives the glory for redemption? Let us look again at Jude's words in verse 1. To those who are called, beloved, and kept. Well, that is certainly a benefit, benefits of the gospel to be sure, but why are they called, beloved, and kept? They are kept for Jesus Christ. Those three words we would do well to take to heart. For Jesus Christ. You have received mercy, peace, and love, saint. You have been called, beloved, and kept for one reason. To glorify your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ, in His work, His attributes, His, uh, the, His renown and reputation are the primary beneficiary, if you will, of redemption. What are we redeemed for? We're redeemed to glorify Jesus Christ. We are redeemed out of the narcissistic self-centeredness that characterizes us in our sin and characterizes our self-centered culture. We would do well to consider with repentant hearts these three words for Jesus Christ. They are revolutionary. One of the mottos of the Reformation, soli deo gloria, Latin, for God's glory alone. They join the other mottos of this era of church history where the church in a repentant, a soul-searching manner across the board sought to hold themselves, our identity, and, the, and their ministry, the understanding of the Word of God and the application of the same accountable to God's principles through a whole scale or a holistic understanding of the Word of God. For God's glory alone was the cry. Also sola fide, faith alone. And uh, sola scriptura, the scriptures alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola Christus, Christ alone. For God's glory alone, we are saved. That is to say that we benefit from salvation, yes, but in a secondary way. 
We are called, beloved, transformed. We are established, equipped. We've received the benefits of Christ's work, His mercy, peace, and love, pictured in the communion elements today for His glory. I remember growing up in evangelicalism and having a sort of default setting in my own mind that Christ died for me and not thinking much beyond that. But I also remember how convicting and transforming it was to come to the realization that I am not the point I am not the object of God's work, ultimately speaking. But I am instead called, like John the Baptist was, to point beyond myself to He who is the Lamb of God. That our lives, after we have been transformed and received the grace of God and the great gift of what is salvation procured, secured for us, we are called to draw attention to Him, to point to Him, to live for His glory. It's not all about us it is all about Christ. And this sounds like a simple and obvious message, but is one that our soul needs to be reminded of so frequently because in our sin, our default setting is to be self-centered. And it's so easy to slip, slip back into that tendency. Let me put it this way. Only the truly redeemed will know the liberating joy of living for the glory of another who alone is worthy of their life's devotion. Only the truly redeemed will know the liberating joy of living for the glory of another who alone is worthy of their life's devotion. You are not worthy of your life's devotion. If you live as though you are, you are a monster. You're a self-worshipper. And this is the message of culture. You know, do it for yourself, love yourself, self-help, self-made, uh, you know, uh, and so forth. Uh, there's such a self-centeredness and self-improvement emphasis to people's lives. Why? Because they sense a, a notion of disorder in their life and they want to get things back on track. But without Christ, they put themselves as the primary motive for improvement. And this will always fall short and create a monster. A self-worshipping, narcissistic, individualistic culture who fails to recognize the purpose and meaning for which they were created. Why were they created? To bring glory to ascribe glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, not to themselves, not to themselves collectively, but instead to the one who is their creator, sustainer, and savior, and redeemer, the one who will usher them into glory, the one who called them though they didn't deserve it, who loved them before they first loved him, who is keeping him by the power of his Holy Spirit for Jesus Christ. The audience and occasion of this book remind us that we are the called for Christ's glory. Now, this unique calling of glorifying the Lord that is our new identity and purpose in Christ also forms the bond of fellowship between you and me, if you know him today, between all the church. Beloved, beloved in verse 1, beloved in verse 3, this term that Jude uses to describe us, we are those who are identified as loved by Christ. And we are those who are identified in this common cause to glorify him. We are kept for him. Although I was eager, Jude says, verse 3, to write to you about our common salvation, that is, the common bond of receiving the benefits of salvation. For the purpose of glorifying Christ, he goes on, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The audience of Jude's letter is comprised of those whose salvation have salvation in common, that is, salvation through and for Jesus Christ. And this shared experience and identity of the saints motivates him to write. Jude is motivated to write on two accounts. Number one, positively, the joy of salvation. 
I was eager, eager to write to you about our common salvation. And secondly, to guard against the faithless and the enemies of the faith. He recognizes a priority for guarding uh, the faithful and contending for the truth. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Saints, beloved, common salvation, the identity and purpose of, this, of the church to glorify the Lord are sometimes threatened. What are they threatened by? Enemies. And enemies, by contrast, do they serve Christ's glory? No, they serve their own glory. And in light of Jude's closing doxology, we can ident better identify who are the enemies of Christ. Verse 4, certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Who are the enemies of the faith? What is fundamental to ungodliness? Well, it is a denial in some sense of the glory of our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And this is evident in the perversion of the truth, ultimately for self-serving reasons. Sensuality is uh, that which is with reference or that which refers to the senses, that, or you could say enhancing the human experience. Enhancing the human experience, human flourishing, or bettering our lives in some way, whether it's sins of indulgence, things of pursuing our base and unsanctified and sinful desires, however we wish, thank you, and by way of lust of the eyes and lust of the flesh, or by way of a more maybe sophisticated way of gathering for ourselves glory and accolades and a sense of identity, that again is to puff up ourselves. When Christ was proclaiming the truth of deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you must become a servant of all. There are many who are touched by his words and moved by what he said that refused or that could not bring themselves to follow him in the end. And, and why? The book of John tells us because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory of God. They stood to lose too much, they figured, as, as, as far as what they had invested in if they were to lay down their life and to live for the glory of another. We must guard our own hearts against this ungodliness that would seek to pervert living for the glory of God into another avenue to better ourselves for ourselves' sake, sensuality. Because when we do so, what do we deny? Our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And who is this Lord and Savior? Who is this one and only God? He is the one who alone is deserving of glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. So we see in Jude's opening, the first four verses, that his doxology helps to illuminate and serve as a heading the audience and occasion of Jude in light of the glory of the Lord. Secondly, dominion. How does Jude's uh, attribute of dominion or his acknowledgement of the glory of the Lord or an aspect of God's character and dominion relate to the rest of his book. In verses 5 through 9, we see witness and precedent, if you will, of the dominion of the Lord. What is dominion? Well, it is lordship. It is the extent of domain that someone has stewardship or charge over. So then we ask ourselves, well, what is the extent of what God is in charge of? What is the reach of his domain? What is his realm? What is his kingdom? 
Well, there are several witnesses, precedent and examples that Jude gives to give us this perspective of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 5, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So we find here a witness to the dominion of Jesus. In leading his people out of the land of Egypt, he is Lord of empires. And destroying those who did not believe, he is Lord over the judgment and the discipline of his people when they rejected his truth. Verse 6, And the angels who did not stay within their own position and authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. If verse 5 tells us, demonstrates that Christ has dominion over the things of earth, empires, and people, then verse 6 testifies to his dominion over the heavens. Even the angels who did not stay in their position of authority were held accountable, and they were judged by the Lord. And they were cast into chains of gloomy darkness. That is, there was a day of reckoning and consequences that were levied against these celestial creatures that don't inhabit our realm as we know it, but in fact, dwelt in heaven. But there was the judgment of the great day when God held them accountable, thus declaring that He has dominion over earth and heaven. This, by the way, is a covenantal framework that illustrates God's sovereignty and authority throughout the Scriptures. Without time to turn there, you might check on your own time several references in Deuteronomy. In chapter 26, um, or chapter 4, verse 26, also in chapter 30, verse 19, in chapter 31, 28, the Lord speaking through Moses calls in those three occasions heaven and earth to witness or to testify. Psalm 50, verses 1 through 6, similar language. When the Lord issues in His day of reckoning what's sometimes called a covenant lawsuit or a, an edict, an indictment that goes forth and says, Now you must answer before me for your actions and how you have lived, whether this be men or angels, he has the authority and dominion to call heaven and earth to witness. This covenantal language of calling as witnesses, what does it imply of his dominion? His dominion, his rule, and his reign is coextensive, indeed transcends the very universe. And uh, we need to be reminded of this, Jude tells us, just as the saints of old did, for several reasons. Sometimes we live as though we are captains of our own universe. We don't take into account in our fear of the Lord the fact that He rules men, empires, history, and angels. That He is responsible for the revolution of every uh, electron around the nucleus of every atom across this entire expanse of the material world. But when we remember this, we remember that He has the dominion to call heaven and earth as witnesses on his day of accounting. And when we remember that there has been these days, appointed days of the Lord in the past, whether it's Egypt accounting for its oppression of the people of God or the angels declared their autonomy and rebellious, uh, <coughs> their rebellious statement of sin against the Lord, these are examples of God's dominion. Furthermore, not only do heaven and earth testify, but Sodom and Gomorrah do as well. Verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in, indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, what purpose do they serve? Jude answers, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. 
Sodom testifies. What does Sodom testify to? Sodom and Gomorrah testify to the dominion of the Lord. Not only did he declare authority and declare lordship over that region and a day of reckoning on account of their sin, but he summoned as his instruments of judgment fire from the heavens. The elements of nature are under the dominion of the Lord, and he summons them as his instruments to accomplish his will when he chooses. Sodom and Gomorrah dramatically testify to the reality of hellfire as an instrument of the judgment of God for those who refuse to acknowledge in the end his dominion, his authority, his glory, and his majesty. It's a sobering testimony, one that should not be diminished or denied. And by the way, if you hear of any teachers or any teaching that seeks to diminish or deny the severe and sobering consequences of the, uh, of the transgression of God's law with respect to a popular sin today, denying his created order by embracing and affirming homosexuality, for instance, you will understand what Judah point out as an enemy. And to contend for the faith is to point out that the example and the testimony of Sodom and Gomorrah tells us that he has dominion not only, only over our lives and the created order, we can't just choose our identity, whatever we want to be, but must live in light of how he has ordered and commanded us, one man, one woman, till death do them part in the godly ideal of marriage. But if we live in rebellion against this, he reserves the right and dominion to summon for himself even the forces of nature and instruments of judgment to bring down on the rebel consequences in his justice for their denial of his dominion. The dominion of God Almighty is evident in the testimony of Sodom and Gomorrah. The rhetorical questions of Job's divine cross-examination came to my mind. You remember in Job, who owns and controls the storehouses, in so many words, of the snow and the rain and the elements of nature? And the charred rubble of Sodom and Gomorrah answers the Lord, the only God. Our Savior Jesus Christ has authority both over the floodwaters that quenched the earth in its rebellion on that day in the days of Noah and burned to a crisp those who refused to repent in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord Almighty has dominion. Heaven and earth testify. Sodom and Gomorrah testify. And Michael the archangel testifies to this too. Verse 8, Yet in like manner these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones, but, verse 9, when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing over the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. This is a curious text, and it cites likely a book called The Assumption of Moses, as my notes tell me here in my study Bible. It was an apocryphal work that is uh, something outside of the canon of Scripture, but is used to illustrate a point by Jude in this case. That is to say, this story illustrates something, that God himself has dominion over angels, over death, and even over the body of Moses. Michael testifies to the scope of God's dominion. Who has dominion over angels? Who has dominion over the devil? Who has dominion over death? Our Lord and Savior. Whatever the actual dispute over the body of Moses, it was no contest. And where do we see a testimony to this? Well, I couldn't help but cross-reference in my mind to Matthew 17 as I was reading this. Verse 1, after the, days, 
After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, led them up a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good we are here. And the story continues. Suffice it to say, Matthew 17, 1 through 3, demonstrates to us the dominion of Jesus Christ over the body of Moses. Moses' body was buried by the Lord. No one knew where he was except the Lord himself. But there came a day where the resurrecting power of our Lord and Savior said, Moses, arise. And as Jesus Christ raised Moses from the dead to appear alongside him with Elijah and to reveal in shining glory, resplendent majesty and grandeur, an image of himself to those three apostles, Peter, James, and John, it was evident that neither the devil nor the grave nor any, uh, anything in heaven and in earth had dominion over the body of Moses save Jesus Christ. It's awesome to see and it's awesome to apply this truth in the gospel. Because not only Moses, but every saint who dies in Christ, there's a destiny for their bones as well. There will come a day, a trumpet sound, where the resurrecting power, the same spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the grave, will proclaim a rise over you, and you will be reunited, soul and body, to worship Him forever, just like our resurrected and ascended incarnate Savior forever is in glory at the right hand of the Father, so the dominion of our Lord, even over our physical bodies, will be evident on that final day as He raises us from the grave to worship Him forever in spirit and in truth, singing Jude's doxology in glory forever without end, fulfilling the prophecy of the apostle and those who wrote along these lines their cohorts like Jude, glory, majesty, dominion, and authority be to him for all time and now and forever. Amen. The scope of dominion witnessed and the precedent of covenant history that is referenced in Jude's book reminds us that the dominion of the Lord extends to heaven, to earth, and that certain events in history testify to this. And even Michael, the archangel himself, illustrates this in Jude's citation. Angels, the devil, death, and the grave are no match for the dominion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thirdly, Jude's book, his letter, illuminated in light of authority, fools and ultimate judgment. What I just proclaimed to you is offensive to those who refuse to submit and surrender to King Jesus. And their submission is evident in their relationship to his word. Do they have a problem with it or do they surrender to it? Jude lived in a day where many refused to surrender to the unadulterated gospel. And these people would often twist and turn and come up with schemes to deceive the people, to take advantage of the situation for their own benefit. But what they demonstrated underneath was a hidden motive, an ulterior motive, denying the authority of Jesus substituting something else in its place. Jude says of them in verse 10, these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. He's also said back in verse 8 that they reject authority and blaspheme glorious ones. You see this problem with authority that characterizes unbelief? He says they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. 10b, 11, woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, 
and perished in Korah's rebellion. What's illustrated here is the absurdity of rebellion. Those who have a problem with Christ's authority and refuse to submit to it. I had a picture in my mind as I was thinking about this of a monkey in Como Zoo. You guys ever been to Como Zoo or any zoo for that matter? And, you know, some, there's sort of a lament you might sometimes feel. It's like, oh, uh, these monkeys really don't have, you know, the, it that great. Sure, there's an airbrush painting of a jungle on the wall, but you, they move 10 feet that direction. They're going to come across some sheetrock with some paint. They're not going to be able to explore the domain of where they, you know, their natural habitat is. Well, imagine one of those monkeys declaring themselves emperor of the world in their zoo in Cuomo, at, at, or that, in the Cuomo Zoo or something like that. First of all, you wouldn't even understand that they were declaring it because he can't speak English. Secondly, it doesn't matter what that monkey thinks. He has no more authority, and he can't exercise his rebellion in any effective way. No, he's captive. He's bound. And the only thing that, uh, the only thing that motivates him thus to proceed in this way is the delusion in his own soul. And this is a picture of the unreasoning instinctive, animalistic, barbaric behavior of those who reject the authority of Jesus Christ. They're like a monkey in their own mind, not realizing that they are in a cage. And they're simply a curious you know, way that tourists can uh, pass the time when they come and check them out. And it doesn't matter the delusions that they entertain. It doesn't change the reality of who is ultimately sovereign. The absurdity of rebellion once you realize it from the perspective of God's eye view, is more apparent. Thus, it makes more sense that judgment is due those who would act in such an absurd way. Woe to them. They're the ones who walk in the way of Cain and Korah and Balaam. And we know what happened to them. We studied it in, the passage, in passages of Scripture as we've, gone through this, as we've gone through this text. Unreasoning, senseless, unsophisticated mentality of unbelief protest a hierarchy as fools protesting gravity. Somebody, that's an interesting sound, not sure where it's coming from. Somebody might protest gravity and say it does not exist and I'll prove it. He climbs 70 stories up in skyscraper and jumps. Well, he might have three uh, seconds or so where he declares victory over the forces of nature, but his testimony will ultimately be proven absurd as, he's, as the consequences of his, his decision are evident, body parts all over the pavement. Again, the absurdity of rebellion illustrated. I was thinking about Gene's sermon from last week in Acts chapter 9. There, Paul, who has defined the authority of Jesus Christ, who is declaring war on every follower of the way, that is, the way of Jesus, Paul was seeking them out to bring them in chains under the authority of the chief priests of the day, to bring them into captivity. And when Jesus, who had dominion over heaven and earth, standing there, who was there at the stoning of Stephen two chapters earlier, holds Paul accountable, what does he say? How long will you kick against the goads? My understanding is, beasts of burden would be hitched up by those who had dominion over them and for a particular task. So you have this yoke and this cart, and you have these goads, which would be sharp objects, so if the animal wanted to move a different direction, he'd be prevented from doing so by these objects that were placed there by his master. This is an image that uh, Jesus used in describing and calling out Paul for the absurdity of his rebellion. How long will you kick against the pricks or against the goads? How long will you resist the dominion and authority of Jesus Christ? 
Well, Paul was struck blind that day, <clears throat> and he was defeated by Jesus. He was defeated in the most glorious, compassionate, and gracious way. God not only showed him in this divine revelation of a blinding light who is boss, but he also changed his heart such that Paul saw himself for what he truly was, the chief of sinners, repented of his sin, and de dedicated his life, no matter what he was called to suffer, for the work and the name of Jesus Christ. Tra transformed in that moment from one who is serving the glory of another, absurdity of his rebellion evident in his quest, to one who once who, uh, tr was transformed to proclaim to the ends of the earth the glory, majesty, dominion, and authority of our only God and his Savior, Jesus Christ. If this does not happen in the course of our lives, that is repentance from the absurdity of our rebellion, there comes ultimately a day of reckoning. <clears throat> and Paul or Jude talks about this as well. He talks about the absurdity of rebellion. He speaks about the bankruptcy of autonomy or self-rule. What are we like if we serve ourselves and ourselves only? Waterless clouds, fruitless trees, wild waves on the sea, wandering stars, useless, bankrupt. This kind of aimlessness that comes with self-worship leads to a crisis of meaning that we can relate to as a culture, an epidemic of despair. This is the bankruptcy of autonomy, the chickens of our self-worship coming home to roost that even surround us as a culture. But we're still, there comes an inevitable reckoning, a, a final day. It was about these, verse 14, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These, this is a profile of the ungodly, they are the grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, Loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. A profile of those who live according to a perverse, an alternate, a competing authority to Jesus Christ. There are fools who stand in the wake of ultimate judgment unless and until they repent. Then for the repentant, and as a close to his book, we move from, uh, we move from <clears throat> excuse me, glory dominion, authority, to theme number four, majesty. And this, I submit, is a theme that does well to illuminate the last few verses, 17 through 25. Here of Jude, verse 17 and following, he draws once again a contrast between the scoffer and the saint. He says, You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time, there will be scoffers. This recounts to us the language, no doubt, that Jude references from 2 Peter 3. Peter speaks as to the nature of scoffers as well, contrasts them with those, the nature of saints. These, Jude writes, follow their ungodly passions. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. And then there's a shift in verse 20. But you, beloved, here we have a description of the saints. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. 
To others show mercy without fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Here once again, Jude, recalling or reprising some of the themes that motivated his writing in the first place, the occasion of his letter, he's contrasting a barbaric disregard of the majesty of God by those motivated by their own self-interest to profane the holy. He's contrasting that with the duty and devotion characterizing the church of God. On the one side, a barbaric disregard for the majesty of the Lord. On the other side, the duty and devotion that mark the church. Those who pray in the Spirit keep ourselves in the love of God. Wait for the mercy of the Lord and have mercy on those who yet might come to the knowledge of the faith. Should God grant us opportunity to snatch them from the fire by sharing our testimony, by praying for them, by giving an answer for the reason of the hope within, by praying with them when they're at a low point in their life, by sharing with them that there is a day of reckoning to come, but there's a way to escape if Jesus dies in their place, absorbs the wrath of God that they deserve. And along the way, fearing the Lord, recognizing, not forgetting what Jude has written, thus hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Scoffers versus saints, majesty displayed. Now to him, as Jude brings his message, his letter to a close, he puts on display in the gospel in just two short verses the majesty of the Lord. He ascribes to him in this worship song glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. It says, his majesty displayed. His majesty displayed in redemption. What is redemption? It's the buying back. It's the saving of a people. It's Jesus dying in the place of sinners and in so doing, creating or satisfying the conditions of covenant such that we are kept from stumbling and in Christ and through his righteousness presented blameless before the presence of God's glory with great joy. Majesty displayed in redemption. Majesty, majesty displayed in revelation. As Jude continues to praise the Lord to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This majesty on display in the fullness of salvation and in the nature of the Godhead. Jude draws our attention and to the Lord's majesty by emphasizing and closing what he has done and who he, who he is. The works of God and his attributes. What he has done and who he is. That ought to be the focus and the theme of our soul's attention every time we step into worship. What have you done, Lord, and who are you? And as we see these answers from Scripture, filling our souls with the joy of our salvation, we use these confessions as, dem as uh, instruments of worship, as confessions of praise, as an expression of the glory of the worship that the Lord so deserves. And finally, this majesty is acknowledged in this model for worship, as Jude closes his song singing, so to speak, to the only God, our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be once again glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. My prayer for us <clears throat> and for all his church, may the voice of, his, of the body of Christ join the testimony of creation the adoration of the angels 
from time immemorial unto glory, that is, unto heaven one day, in ascribing glory, majesty, dominion, and authority to our Lord. He is, after all, the one who keeps us from stumbling. He is the one who presents us blameless before his glory. He is the one who is our great joy. He is the only God. He is our Savior. He is our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is true before all time and now and forever. This morning, as we acknowledge the work of Christ in the elements of communion, we're reminded of what set apart the people, the audience of Jude in the first place. They were those who realized that their sins must be atoned for, that only in the broken body and shed blood of Christ was their salvation. As we partake at the Lord's table today, only come if you know him as your Lord and Savior. Only come if you search your heart and you come in humility, dependence on his blood and body to save you. But as you do so, remember this glorious display of his majesty, dominion, and authority and taking, the, and taking the will of the Father to earth in the incarnation and dying in the place of sinners, paying the cost of redemption and declaring dominion over the grave and ascending and rising the third day and then ascending for the right hand of the Father. Remember these things as we partake at the Lord's table today. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we thank you for this occasion to consider your word, your word proclaimed in the scriptures, Jude's great epistle, your word portrayed and dramatized in this meal before us today. As we partake in this covenant meal, Lord, reminding us that the bond of fellowship and friendship and reconciliation with the Holy God is possible only in and through Jesus Christ, may we do so recognizing that you, Jesus, are the ultimate beneficiary of our salvation, that you deserve the glory. And so let us worship you in spirit and in truth today as we proclaim that Christ alone is worthy of our affections, is worthy of our praise. In his name we pray, amen. <clears throat> as the worship team closes, perhaps singing Jude's doxology, the communion table is open to you if you have confessed your sin and believed in Jesus Christ, if you have done so, if this me message resonated with you because you trust that he died for your sins, and I encourage you to come and partake these elements of the Lord's table. Those who are seated closest to the back of the building, file up first as always. And after we've received the elements, return to our seats. I'll come to the pulpit and we'll partake together. Welcome to the table of the Lord.